the reading for today's sermon will come from the book of Revelation, and we'll be reading from chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 7. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. These are the words of the Apostle John. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we come to your word this morning, we are mindful of those words of James and that exhortation that we might not only be hearers of your word, but might be doers of your word. 
And so, Father, would you speak to us from your word this morning? Would you make its meaning clear to us? Would you reveal its message to us? Would you convince us of that message? Would you convict us of that message? And would you continue to grow us in faithfulness and fruitfulness, even as Michael prayed earlier today? Father, that we might live as your people, that we might exist as a church that is your church in this world in a way that honors you and that glorifies you, that pleases you, and that is useful to you. And so, Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get back to our study of the minor prophets together and jump into the book of Joel together, I wanted on this first day of the new year, the first day of 2023, I wanted for us to look at this letter in Revelation chapter 2 that Jesus wrote to the church in the city of Ephesus. There were seven churches, as Ian read from chapter 1, there were seven churches that Jesus instructed the Apostle John to send messages to. And those letters are recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. All of those churches were real churches historically in actual time, in actual cities in the western part of Asia Minor. And Jesus, who had revealed himself there in the end of chapter 1, and in all of his resurrected, glorified holiness and splendor and power and majesty and authority, had commissioned messengers to go to those churches and to bring messages to them. And all of those churches were, were symbolized, pictured, illustrated by Jesus in the vision that John had in Revelation chapter 1. The churches were, were symbolized by the picture of a lampstand, like the seven-stemmed lampstand, the candle menorah in the temple that cast light on the work of the priests. That's how the churches were portrayed here, as the, as the priests were there in the temple making, making atonement for the sins of the people, the menorah cast light down upon them and upon that work that it might be illuminated, that it might be seen, that it might be understood, that it might be accomplished and fulfilled, and Jesus is picturing his churches in that way. We're going we're gonna to see more about that in a little bit, but together... These churches that are to be the light of the world, you see? These churches that Jesus addresses in these two chapters in the book of Revelation are sort of representative of the church of Jesus Christ as a whole throughout the ages and, and, and throughout the breadth of the world. They represent the church of Jesus Christ both in terms of the challenges and the difficulties that the church faces wherever it is in this world and whenever it is in history, and also in terms of the kinds of successes and failures that churches tend to experience in this world. And also, Jesus is, um, is, is challenging and commending these churches. Some of them have done well, as we'll see in the church of Ephesus this morning, but some of them have failed in various ways. And so he's not just commending them, he's, he's condemning them. He's, he's calling them to repent. Some churches he's calling to remain faithful through trials and temptations. He's, and then he's, he's also warning them against all kinds of compromise and unfaithfulness. And so the seven churches that he addresses here in these two chapters reflect uh, the spectrum of churches in terms of the challenges that churches continue to face throughout the age of the church, all throughout the ch history of the church as a whole. 
Every single church in the world throughout the centuries since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ has a lot to hear and a lot to learn and a lot to take to heart from the letters that Jesus commanded to be sent to the seven churches here in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And as I read through those letters, as I read through the the messages that Jesus sent to these seven churches, the, the church that strikes me as being the most similar to our church here in 21st century Felton, California, United States of America, is the first one on the list, the church in Ephesus. And so I just want to focus on this letter with you this morning as we come into a new year because it has a a powerfully profound message that we need to be exhorted by as they need to be exhorted by it then. And so as we think about this exhortation, and it should ring loudly in our ears here in the 21st century, as we revel in God's faithfulness to us, as we, as we trust God for the grace that we need going forward into a new year, we need to hearken unto his voice to us as the church in Ephesus did here. So that's what I want to do at the beginning of this new year. I want to I tune into these words of our Lord. I want to take them to heart together as a church. So let's think about the city of Ephesus and the church that was there when Jesus was writing this message to them. The city of Ephesus is, if you remember from our study in the book of Acts, the city of Ephesus is on the west coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was a coastal city right on the Mediterranean Sea, and so there was a major seaport there in Ephesus that served the Roman world in the first century. And one of the reasons why Jesus speaks to Ephesus First, in this list of seven churches that he's going to write to, is that geographically, if you were traveling to these churches from where John was on the island of Patmos out in the Mediterranean Sea, if you were going to go to these seven churches as Jesus commanded John to do, then Ephesus would literally geographically be the first one that you would go to because that's where the big seaport is. And so you would make landfall there, and you would preach to the church there first, and then you would travel all around to the other six churches that Jesus commanded messages to be sent to. And because that's where Ephesus was, and because it was a major seaport city, it was a place that lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different places and different cultures came to. They, they passed through Ephesus on their way to various other parts of Asia Minor and the Mediterranean world. And so that city was a city like any other major port city or crossroads. It was, a, it was a hub of travel. It was a hub of traffic. And it became kind of a cultural melting pot in terms of all of the cultural diversity that existed all around the Roman Empire. It was full of people from every kind of place. And it was full of every kind of culture. And it was full of every kind of belief every kind of worldview. Ephesus was a very academic city. It it, it had a massive library that was full of philosophical writings that had been collected from all over the known world. There was a huge repository there of, of worldly wisdom reflecting every kind of of worldview, false worldview imaginable. And Ephesus was, as you can imagine, a very, very religious city. It was full of every kind of religion from all around the empire. All kinds of false religions, temples to false pagan deities and all of the worldly 
immorality that always came from that kind of idolatry. In fact, Ephesus was also sort of a center of occult activity in the Mediterranean world. There was a major collection of papyrus scrolls in the library there that were filled with with very dark, very demonic, occultic kinds of writings and magical spells and incantations and things like that. The practices of witchcraft and sorcery and anybody who is into that kind of dark side of the spiritual realm would come to Ephesus in order to read from those scrolls and learn from those occultic kind of dark arts. So see, culturally, religiously, philosophically, spiritually, There was all kinds of worldly and false and dark and deceptive and demonic stuff going on in the city of Ephesus. It makes me think about the west coast of California. It makes me think about Santa Cruz and San Francisco and the areas that we live in here. All kinds of teachings and beliefs and worldviews that the church and that the Christians in Ephesus had to face. And that meant two things. It meant both the pressure and the opposition of all of that dark, satanic, worldly godlessness, right? The spiritual warfare and oppression that Christians have to face in this world was was potent there in Ephesus, even as it is here in Santa Cruz, even as it is here in California. And it also meant this. It also meant that the church in Ephesus and the Christians in that city faced the temptation that so many Christians, so many churches become vulnerable to in this world to become influenced by all of that worldly wisdom and ungodliness. And instead of resisting it, instead of rejecting it, they come to imbibe it and they come to be characterized by it. And Ephesus had to be aware of that temptation and they had to face all of those pressures and temptations in their daily lives as Christians and as a church there. And as we look at what Jesus has to say to the church that was in that city in the first century after his resurrection, where all of that godlessness and paganism and darkness was so thick and prevalent, and Christians were surrounded and and inundated by all of that spiritual junk, and temptation was a, a, a reality and a profound impact on their daily lives, what we find, first of all, as Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus, is that he is commending them for standing firm. And so that is, there's two main takeaways from this letter to the church in Ephesus, and that's the first one. The first takeaway is that they were commended by Christ. He was praising them for their ability to stand firm in the midst of all of that darkness, to remain bright in the midst of all of, to not be tempted and to not succumb to the temptation to become like the world in all of the ways that they would have felt pressured to there in Ephesus. They were discerning. They were able to discern the darkness around them and, 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 and tell the difference between it and the light of God's truth in his world. They saw the contrast between worldly wisdom in all of its subtle forms and the wisdom that God has revealed in his word. They discerned the lies and the deceptions of Satan. They discerned all of the ways that false teaching and and that that worldly values tend to creep into the church and corrupt it and derail its ability to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And they, they stood firm. They didn't let that happen. 
They kept teaching and preaching the true word of God, even in that culture where the word of God and the truth of God was wildly unpopular. And surely they would have faced ridicule and oppression and opposition and persecution even for standing true to God's word. The church did that. They stood true on the foundation of the word of God in scripture. So Jesus says to them, look, verse 1 there of Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's Jesus, right? These are Jesus' words to this church. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. So this is good. Right out of the gate, Jesus praises this church. He commends them for several really, really important things. He says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. The word works there is just a, a general word for the things that we do. And then the word toil is a more specific word, which means difficult work. Not just stuff we do, but stuff we do even though it's hard. Sometimes I avoid doing things that are hard. If I know it's going to be difficult, then I'll sort of put it off and procrastinate because I don't want to deal with it. Well, they didn't do that in Ephesus. Even though it was hard, they continued to do the hard work, uncomfortable work, burdensome work. And so what Jesus is saying to them is that he knows that the things that they did were good things and that they did those things even when it wasn't easy. Even when they faced persecution and opposition and oppression, they continued to do things that Jesus judged to be good. And he's talking about their study of God's word. He's talking about their teaching. He's talking about their preaching. He's talking about the work of discipleship that they did in helping Christians in the city of Ephesus to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ to become more and more mature in their faith and faithfulness to Jesus. He's talking about the fact that they refused to tolerate unrepentant sin in the lives of people in Ephesus. They refused to tolerate immorality in the church. They refused to sort of let it slide. They refused to let it go on for the sake of not wanting to rock the boats. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote letters, two of them specifically, to a church in the city of Corinth where the opposite was true. Corinth was another big culturally diverse city, kind of a crossroads place, kind of a melting pot place. And in that city, in Corinth, the church didn't always stand firm. When there was sin in the church in Corinth, they didn't deal with it well. They let it fester pretty seriously in their church. They tolerated it because they didn't want to upset anybody. They didn't want to tell anybody to repent for fear that they would leave. And it might be divisive in the church. They didn't want to lose people. They didn't want to do anything unpopular. They wanted to make sure that the world saw them as a loving church. They didn't want to come across as, as being critical to sinners in their church. They didn't want to offend anybody. And so they thought that letting sin slide would be better for the growth of their church, for the unity of their church, and for their witness in the world. 
but they were absolutely dead wrong. That's not how churches grow. It's how they grow more and more sick. It's not how they grow more and more healthily. Sin in the midst of the church in Corinth was devastating to their spiritual health and to the actual health and the unity of the body of Christ and to their witness of God's holiness and to the gospel in the world. It's tough to call people to repent of sin and to turn and believe on Jesus when, when you treat sin like it's not really a big deal, right? Well, that's what was going on in Corinth. That's what's going on in our world. That's what's going on in all too many churches today. They won't deal with sin because they want more people to come. They don't want to offend anybody. They want to seem to be kind and loving and genuine and all of these authentic things. They want to be popular. And what you can't be when you're trying to be popular with the world is faithful to Jesus Christ. Well, that's what was going on in Corinth. Amen. Thank you. And so Paul, in the letters to the church in Corinth, he rebuked them. And he exhorted them to deal with the sin there and to deal with it severely and to deal with it no matter what the cost and to trust God with the unity and the growth of the church. Ours is not to do what we can do to grow the church. Ours is to be faithful to Jesus and let him, it's his church, let him build it, let him grow it. When the church in the city of Colossae was plagued by false teaching, Paul, even though he was in prison in Rome, even though he'd never actually been to the city of Colossae, so obviously he'd never even been to that church in Colossae, when he heard that there was false teaching there, he took the time to write a letter and to deal with that false teaching and to deal with it urgently because he knew, he knew what spiritual poison false teaching is and how spiritually deadly it is. And he knew how eternal the stakes are. If people are being led astray, then the consequences for them will be everlasting. And that's horrifying to contemplate. And so Paul urgently dispatched a letter to the Colossian church. Well, so see, the good news about the church in Ephesus is they were different than the church in Corinth. They dealt with the sin. They dealt with the false teachers. They dealt with the false apostles. They were diligent in their studies of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They worked hard. They toiled to get their doctrine right, to get their theology, to get their teaching right, to make sure that people were living in holiness and that all the insidious sorts of errors and falsehoods didn't creep in like, like mildew tends to creep in and start spreading and spoiling the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's exactly what false teaching is, right? That's how it, how it is. That's how sin is, right? It's like, it's like mold. It's like mildew. You don't know when it starts or where it starts, but before you know it, it's starting to spread everywhere and rot everything. At first, maybe, it doesn't seem like such a big deal to some Christians, to some churches, to let little things slide. It's okay, they think, to make little compromises. It seems insignificant. It seems okay to tolerate teachings and practices that don't completely line up with God's word. It feels like that's not going to make much of a difference, but it does. It always does, and especially over time, little compromises always turn into big compromises. That's why there are now, in the year 2023, 
universities, whole universities and seminaries that 50 years ago, 100 years ago in this country stood firm, were founded on the truth of God's word, the inerrancy of God's word, the purity of the teachings of God's word. But now they have utterly and completely strayed, not just doctrinally, but also morally. They have become captivated by the wicked agendas of this world. They're calling good evil, and they're calling evil good, and they're tolerating it and letting it fester like mold. Churches and denominations that once stood as champions of the gospel and the purity of God's word and holiness have now caved in to the darkness and deceptions of the devil and the whims and the pleasures of the sinful, godless world. Well, the church in Ephesus didn't do that. They didn't cave in. They worked hard. They toiled. They persevered in the midst of pressure and temptation and deception and distraction. They couldn't bear with those who were evil, Jesus says. They were so committed to the truth. They were so satisfied and satiated with the gospel, so convinced and convicted by the veracity and sufficiency of God's word that they literally couldn't stand anything false, anything evil, anything dark. They wouldn't tolerate it in any way, shape, or form. Jesus says they tested anyone who called themselves an apostle. And because they were so familiar with and treasured so much the word of God, they were able to discern the false apostles from the true. How'd they do that? Well, it wasn't like divination through some kind of mystical means. They weren't, they weren't summoning oracles to tell them who the false apostles were. They didn't have a crystal ball. They had the word of God. And they worked so hard to be so familiar with the teachings of God's word that they were really, really good at recognizing all of the errors when they first saw them, right? You've heard the old illustration of a, a treasury agent and how they're trained to find counterfeit bills. It's by becoming so familiar with what an authentic bill looks like. Dollar bill, hundred dollar bill. What it looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like in every detail. And then they'll slip a, a counterfeit bill in the midst of a stack of authentic ones and they'll just have them count, 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 count. And if they're good enough, they hit that, they hit that counterfeit bill and bam, they stop and they know. Immediately, it's got a different texture, it's got a different feel, it's got a different weight, it, something's wrong. So we need to investigate further, and sure enough, it's counterfeit, and so they reject it. That was the church in Ephesus. They were like the Berean church, remember, from Acts chapter 17? The Berean church received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily in order to see whether the teaching that other people brought into the church lined up with the pure teachings of God's word. So it was in Ephesus. Down in verse 6 here, Jesus says to the Ephesian church, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so they did a lot better in Ephesus than they did in the church of Pergamum, which Jesus is going to write to later in these chapters, because in the church in Pergamum, these same false teachers, these Nicolaitans, were being tolerated in the church. And so Jesus re rebuked, rebuked the Pergamum church for tolerating the false teaching. And the gist of the false teaching, the Nicolaitan error, 
the way that Satan was using that specific teaching in order to confuse and deceive and corrupt churches was that the Nicolaitans promoted two things. Idolatry, like, like a syncretistic inclusion of the world's religions with the Christian faith. And then secondly, and on the other side of that coin, a combination of the world's values and morals in the practices of the church, specifically leading to very, very sinful, unbiblical, perverse kinds of sexuality, sexual sin and immorality. Idolatry is emphasizing anything, any worldly treasure, any worldly pleasure, whether it's something inherently evil or inherently good, to a level that commands more attention, more affection, more devotion than our devotion to God. Something that happens all the time, right? And in so many ways in this world. It's the, it's the foundation of what we call the prosperity gospel that elevates health and wealth and prosperity as the, the goal of the Christian life and the measure of whether we're being faithful or godly in our Christian walk and the, and the essence of the promise of the gospel. Trust Jesus and it'll give you that stuff. It's not about salvation from sin. It's about earthly prosperity and health and wealth. It's an entirely idolatrous false teaching. Think about the entertainment emphasis in so many churches in the 21st century, which elevates sensory experience and entertainment to the very top of the totem pole in terms of what's important in worship, in terms of what's effective in the witness of the church. Very often that becomes a very, very idolatrous kind of thing to do, an enterprise in the church. And there's all kinds of other ways in which idolatry, this, this impulse to elevate all kinds of things and priorities and experiences up above the glory and the holiness of God and the sufficiency of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit, there's all kinds of ways in which that idolatrous impulse corrupts churches all around us. And it's become very, very clear and obvious in our day and age too, hasn't it, how far astray many, many churches have wandered after the sinful, unbiblical, and very, very perverse values of this world have become, the trends of sexuality in our culture and our world. We don't need to list all of that here again today, but see, this was the strategy specifically of the Nicolaitans. This was Satan's strategy to try and cripple and handicap churches in the first century, and it's a lot like what he continues to do to churches in this day and age. Satan in that time worked through false teachers like the Nicolaitans to promote all kinds of falsehood and idolatry and immorality in the churches, and many of them fell for it. And many of them let it start to fester like mold, like a, like a cancerous disease in their churches. But the church in Ephesus was commended and praised for having none of it, for working hard to discern and to know and to teach the pure truth of God's word and to put to test and to kick to the curb any false teachers and any false teaching and to promote godliness, holiness, pure living, thriving among the followers of Jesus there in Ephesus. So I'd like to think that that's the kind of church we all want to be, right? Like the church in Ephesus. 
That's the kind of church we've worked hard to be for a lot of years. In fact, since the founding of this church in the 1960s, the elders, the teachers, the preachers, throughout the years, everybody who's been a part of this church, including you all, you're here because you love the true Jesus and the purity of his word. And you're striving after holiness and you know that you need the grace and strength that only comes from the gospel to continue to strive in faithfulness and run the race with endurance. Even when the currents of this world all around us are flowing so powerfully the other direction. We hate the currents of ungodliness. We can't stand false teaching and idolatry and immorality. And we hate them because... Just as Jesus said to the Ephesians, he hates all of that junk also. And so if we love him, we're going to hate what he hates. And so by his grace and for his glory, we work hard to stand firm, even when it's tough, even when it's unpopular, even when everybody goes to the bigger church down the road. So again, of all the churches that Jesus will address here in Revelation 2 and 3, I do see our church represented most by the church in Ephesus, and that's why it's so important that we hear very loudly and very clearly and listen very closely and take very greatly to heart the next thing that Jesus has to say to the church that was in Ephesus. And this is the second takeaway. He has commended them for their doctrinal purity, for not tolerating evil, but he also condemns them for something. He also challenges them and calls them to repent in very definite terms of something very, very specific. Verse 4. This I have against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, you've all heard this verse. You've probably read all kinds of things on this verse like I have, and you recognize that there's different interpretations as to what that means, that they abandoned the love that they had at first. Some commentators, some scholars say that it was a love for God, that it was a love for Jesus that the church in Ephesus had abandoned. And that word abandoned is a strong word. It doesn't just mean that it had start to, started to wane some, that it had started to ebb away some. It means that they had rejected it. It means that they had completely pushed it aside. And so I don't think that that's what this is referring to, a love for God and a love for Jesus, because I think that what Jesus has already said proves that they did have a thriving love for God and for Jesus and for his word and for the gospel in their church. It's precisely a love for Christ that has driven their zeal for truth in a way that pleases Christ. Right? If it was a hypocritical, hollow, unloving, sort of outward pharisaical devotion to the word of God, Jesus wouldn't love it at all because he condemned the Pharisees for that kind of thing. Their hatred of evil was firmly grounded in a love for Christ. And that's, again, that's why I believe he has already given so much praise to this church. So other scholars say, well, it wasn't a love for Christ that they had banded. It was a love for one another in the church, brothers and sisters that they had lost. That in the pursuit of doctrinal purity and holiness, they'd, they'd lost a sort of loving sense of compassion and care 
for one another and for people. They were just so intent on getting their theology right that they weren't a family, that they weren't the, the, the collective brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and children of God and treating one another with that kind of love. And that's, that's much closer, and there's probably a, an aspect of that that was true in the church of Ephesus. That's probably much, much closer to what Jesus means, but I think it's more. And I think it's more specific in terms of what kind of love and for whom that they've abandoned in the church of Ephesus. In verse 5, Jesus calls them to repent of this error of abandoning the love that they had at first, and he gives them a warning, a specific warning, which he doesn't give to any of the other seven churches here. And he gives them this warning if they won't repent. And the key to understanding the challenge or the rebuke that Jesus confronts this church with is in the warning itself. So look at verse 5. He said, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, here's the warning, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a specific warning. I'm going to pull your lampstand out. And he doesn't give that kind of warning to any of the other churches, even the ones that he has much more strong condemnation to speak to here in Revelation 2 and 3. Some of them that, he, that he's absolutely condemning in no uncertain terms, he'll say things like, I'm about to come against you. I'm about to make war against you. Things like that. But here he specifically says, if you won't repent, then I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. He's going to come and do that, he says. Now, he's not talking about the second coming. At the end of all time, when he comes with the clouds, visibly for every eye to see and behold, something that's still in our future, that we're still waiting for. Here he's talking about another kind of visitation where he will come in spirit and remove the lampstand of the church in Ephesus. What does that mean? He's going to snuff out the lights, see, that they're supposed to be in this world. He's going to let them go. He's going to let them wither. He's going to let them fizzle out. And the key to understanding the love that they've lost and Jesus' rebuke for that is in understanding and remembering why he uses lampstands to signify and symbolize his churches. Lampstands here, as he reveals them in chapter 1 and as he refers to it here in Ephesus, lampstands is a, a reference to the menorah, again, in the temple. It's that, that big golden candlestick that had seven candles in it. And again, it was intended to shed light on the priestly work of sacrifice and atonement in the temple. Think back to the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, God gave the prophet Zechariah a, a, a marvelous vision of a lampstand in the temple, a big menorah that was, that was sort of self-sustaining, that was automatically fed and, and so kept perpetually lit. They didn't have to keep lighting it. They didn't have to keep pouring oil into it because it was flanked on either side by by a bunch of olive trees that fed into this menorah and kept it supplied with a never-ending supply of oil, and so the light never went out. 
and, and what that vision signified in Zechariah's day was that Israel's ability to be the light that God called them to be unto the nations was not dependent on their own works, but on his work. It's in that vision that he says, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's what the, the lampstand that was fed by the olive trees and remained perpetually lit signified. By God's spirit in them, with them, through them, they would be the light of the nations, right? That's what the Old Testament nation of Israel was supposed to be. Just like the menorah in the temple cast light on God's work of atonement in the temple, they were supposed to shine the light of God's truth and the, the atoning, redeeming work of God. They were supposed to shine that out into the world. They were supposed to radiate the glory of God's holiness out into the world and be the light in the darkness, the light of the nations. Isaiah 46, I will give you as a covenant for the peoples, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from prison those who sit in darkness. That's what Israel was supposed to be, but they weren't, right? Because they didn't rely on the Spirit of God. They didn't rely on the Word of God. They didn't rely on the power of God. They relied on their own means. And so they failed to be the light of the nations. The darkness of the world, all of the idolatry and immorality of the world was every bit as thick and heavy inside Israel as it was outside. So in the New Testament, God calls the church, the true Israel, the Israel of God, which, which he calls the church in Galatians 6, he calls the church of Jesus Christ to be the light of the world, right? Those are Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. And that's why he pictures the church by way of a lampstand here in the book of Revelation. That's our calling. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. Not just to learn good theology. Not just to love one another inside the church. Not just to have good fellowship and unity together. Yes, but in order that we might be the light of the world, that those living in darkness might come to Christ. We're supposed to be, Jesus says, a beacon set up on a high hill so that people wandering in darkness who are lost might see the light of truth and the hope of Christ and come to him and be found. We're supposed to, Peter says, be a kingdom of priests bringing the atoning mercies and the love of Jesus who is the great high priest to the lost souls all around us in order that God might bring them home. That is the love, that outward reaching, lost seeking, darkness penetrating love. That is the love that the church of Ephesus had at first when Paul planted that church in that city and spent so much time there, remember? Three years or more. He was in Ephesus raising up leaders so that in that especially dark place, in that cultural melting pot, they could be the light. They could reach out to people in that city and bring them in. They had a love for the lost. They had a holy zeal to be the light in the darkness and the city on the hill. They had an urgent passion 
to bring the sacrificial saving love of Jesus to the world around them by proclaiming the gospel in Ephesus. That's how the church started. And that's how it grew initially. That's how it thrived at first. Because a love for the lost drove an ongoing ministry of evangelism and gospel proclamation in Ephesus as the people who came to church and heard the pure word preached were saved, were redeemed, were strengthened, were equipped by it, and then went themselves out into the darkness, taking the light of truth with them in order to do the work of the ministry. Isn't that exactly what Paul describes in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians? In Ephesians chapter 4, here's how it's supposed to work, Paul says. Here's how it was working at first in Ephesus. Ephesians 4 verse 11, he says that God gave the apostles like Paul and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers in order to equip the saints, the congregation, the body of Christ for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what was happening. That's what was supposed to be happening. And it is what was happening, at least at first. The apostles and the shepherds and the teachers worked hard to discern truth, to teach truth, to equip the saints, to go out and to do the work of the ministry of bringing the gospel to Ephesus. And even as people who were in Ephesus from other parts in the empire came and became saved, to to then take that out with them to other parts of the world. But somewhere along the line, see, as the church faced all the pressures of the world around them and worked hard and toiled to resist that pressure and to stand firm for truth, as they labored and fought hard against all of the currents of evil, and false teaching, and idolatry, and immorality there in Ephesus, as they strove to maintain doctrinal purity and solid teaching and preaching, they lost that love that they had at first. They lost their zeal. They lost the sense of urgency that they had to bring the gospel to the people of Ephesus who were perishing spiritually. They became so focused inside the church on standing firm for the truth, which Jesus commends them for, that they lost their focus outside on the reason why they were in Ephesus in the first place. To be the lampstand in Ephesus, the light shining on the sacrificial atoning priestly work of Jesus that the world might see and come. So see, that's the danger. That's the danger. In Old Testament Israel, they failed to be the light unto the nations. And the reason that happened in Old Testament Israel was because they became infected with the darkness of the nations. In Israel, they became corrupted by the same idolatry and immorality and false teachings as the nations around them. And so so God, in a sense, pulled Israel's lampstand in the Old Testament. But see, that's not the problem with the church in Ephesus, right? They weren't corrupted by the idolatry and the immorality and the false teaching of the world. They were good at keeping themselves unstained by all of that. Jesus commended them for that and for standing firm. But their problem was, for all their zeal to remain 
doctrinally and morally pure, they had lost their zeal for the lost. For all their work to teach pure biblical truth, they'd, they'd come to actually abandon the work of preaching the gospel to the world around them. They'd forsaken their calling as a kingdom of priests and as lampstands in the dark world. And so Jesus' warning was stark. You've got to repent of this. You've got to return to the priestly gospel work or else he was going to come and remove their lampstand from Ephesus. Remove the work of the Holy Spirit, right, who feeds the lampstand from that city. And that, I'll tell you what, that's sobering, is it not? This first letter to the church in Ephesus is sobering and should be for us here in Felton in Santa Cruz where the darkness is palpable. I think we've worked hard and labored and toiled and persevered and endured and borne up for Jesus' namesake against the currents of false teaching and idolatry and, and immorality in Santa Cruz. I think Jesus would commend us for that, but how urgently do we feel a zeal for the lost in Santa Cruz? How driven are we by the love of Jesus? The love by which, with which we've been loved, as we saw in 1 John 4. How driven are we by this love by which we've been loved, by which we've been saved from eternal condemnation to bring that same saving love to the world around us and shine that light of the gospel into the darkness of our county here, our state here. Now, make no mistake, let's, let's talk about what love does and doesn't mean, right? Love for lost, unbelieving people does not mean what the world and so many churches insist that love means these days. These days, we're told that we are unloving if we tell people that what they're doing and how they're living is sinful according to God's word. Don't do that because then you're not being very loving, people say, and churches say and do. Here's what God's word says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 10. The world says, you know, if you're going to preach, don't preach that verse. And there are churches that won't. The world says that immorality and idolatry and adultery and homosexuality are fine. They're good. They're acceptable lifestyle choices. And many churches have caved in and said, well, we'll just cater to that because otherwise nobody's going to come anyways, so... And see, if we then, if we say that people who practice those things are sinning and need to repent and believe on Jesus so that they can inherit the kingdom of God, otherwise they can't, and if they don't inherit the kingdom of God, they're going to inherit his eternal wrath and judgment. If we say that, then the world says, we're being unloving. And they say, love means you, you, you have to accept everybody for who they are. By which they mean accepting everyone for for what they want the freedom to do. That's the world's definition of love. It's not God's definition. It's not who God is, and God is love. Certainly not how God reveals his love in Jesus Christ who called people to repent and believe. 
simple to understand, right? Really, if someone you know and someone you love, maybe one of your children, is enjoying a delicious meal and all of a sudden you realize that a box of rat poison had accidentally been tipped over and spilled into the pot while it was cooking. But they're loving this. This is the best thing they've ever tasted. They're so happy to be eating this. It is not loving for you to keep quiet about the fact that it's full of rat poison just because they're enjoying their meal so much, is it? It's the opposite of love. Well, I didn't want to ruin their dinner. I didn't want to make anybody sad by telling them that what they cooked wasn't good for us. I didn't want to be negative. I didn't want to be judgmental about the rat poison in there. Now, love urges them to stop eating poison, even if it's the best thing they ever tasted. Listen to God's word in Ezekiel chapter 3. God says, this is Ezekiel 3, verse 18. He says, if I say to the wicked, God speaking, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die for your wickedness. And you, Israel, give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, then the wicked person will surely die for his iniquity. But God says, his blood shall I require at your hand because you didn't warn him. Because you didn't warn him. Love rings the bell, blows the horn, sounds the warning to the wicked and pleads with them to repent. It doesn't condemn them. It doesn't presume to judge them and, and elevate ourselves as somehow superior to or better than them. It says, look, I was saved. Now please come and be saved. That's the goal. The salvation of their everlasting souls. Verse 19 of Ezekiel, goes the same chapter, goes on and says, But if you warn the wicked, and he still doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, then he will die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your own soul. So this is how God defines love. Love warns the wicked of coming judgment, even if the wicked are going to refuse and repent and turn from their sin. Proverbs chapter 24 defines the wisdom of love towards those who are perishing like this. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back, best as you can, hold back those who are stumbling towards the slaughter. If you say, well, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? And so that was, the, that was the kind of warning Jesus is giving to the church in Ephesus. And one that we would do well to heed and take to heart as well as a church. There are people all around us who aren't following Jesus. Who aren't repenting of the sin that he will return and judge. There are people all around us who are being deceived by Satan's lies, many of which are being parroted by churches in America, in California, in, in Santa Cruz County today, calling evil good and good evil. 
that we're called to rescue those who are stumbling towards the slaughter. We're called to plead with them to repent and to believe. And if we say, well, we didn't know, as an excuse to keep quiet and squelch the warning and the gospel call, then when justice falls on them for their sin, God will require their blood of us at our hands. And so the simple message to Ephesus and every church, including our own, is that we must not sit on our doctrinal and theological laurels. We must be urgent about the proclamation of the gospel. We must not be and cannot be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul himself says so strongly in Romans chapter 1, doesn't he? I'm not ashamed of it. I don't care if I go out there and I say repent and believe and people mock me and tell me I'm stupid and call me a babbling fool like they did at the Areopagus, remember? Mars Hill there in Acts chapter 17. Who is this babbler? What's he on about? What an idiot. I don't care, Paul says. It's God's word. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed if I proclaim it all day long and nobody believes me, nobody repents, nobody comes. Because the power unto that is in the gospel itself and is in God's hands and I'm not God, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't change their hearts, I can just give the warning and ring the bell and call them to repent and believe. I'm not ashamed. We cannot let the world intimidate us from proclaiming the gospel just because the world despises the gospel and calls it unloving and may persecute us for it like they did Paul. Paul says, go ahead, persecute me. Go ahead, beat me. Go ahead, throw me in prison, because guess what? That means I get to preach the gospel to the prison guards in Rome, right? Remember? And then all of a sudden, the whole Praetorian Guard in Rome has heard the gospel. Praise be to God. Jesus said, look, you don't, when it's dark in your house, you don't light a lamp and then put a basket over the lamp and hide it. No, if you light a lamp in your house, you, you put it up on a stand so that it gives light to the whole house. That's what the church must be. That's what the gospel must be. You know the gospel. You know the light. You know the truth. You love it. Wonderful. Don't keep it under a little basket. You've got to put it up high so that it can be seen far and wide. Whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you work, you say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a vocational minister. Great, then God has placed you in a place where there are unbelievers and you can build friendships and relationships with them and you can convince them that you love them so that when the opportunity is right, you can tell them the truth of the gospel and warn them against the wrath that is to come. Jesus Christ has lit a powerful light of gospel truth here in Felton. And I really pray that we're not hiding it under a basket. I pray that in our zeal to protect and maintain the purity of truth, we don't lose and haven't lost our love for the lost and allowed our lampstand to be shrouded here. So in verse 7, this is where we'll close. Having given this rebuke, this warning to the church in Ephesus, this is what Jesus says to them in closing, and, and he's saying it to us as we close today, too. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who 
conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Listen, the one who conquers isn't just the one who endures persecution and stands firm in their faith, uncompromising through the trials and temptations and sufferings and sorrows and all the pressures of this dark world. It is that, but it's more than that. The one who conquers also remains faithful and obedient to everything that Jesus has commanded us to do, which is not just to abstain from immorality, but to make disciples and to call people from darkness and into the blessed light of Jesus Christ. Right? He's commanded us to be salt and light in this world. He's commanded us to be that city on the hill with our light lifted high for all to see. He's commanded us to go and to make disciples of the nations, to preach the gospel in season and out, doesn't he say? What's that mean? Preach the word in season and out. It means even if you don't think it's bearing any fruit and won't bear any fruit because, because winter has set in spiritually in Santa Cruz and everything is under a cold permafrost layer of darkness and sin and unbelief. And so I'm not preaching out there because nothing can possibly grow out there. It's not the season to preach. Preach it anyways, Paul says. Because God can melt the most thick frost. God can break the hardest heart. God's light of truth can shatter the deepest darkness. And we're commanded to preach in season and out of season. When it's well received and when it's flat out rejected, still preach. Be Jonah in Nineveh. <laughs> and say repent and watch what God can do. The whole city of Nineveh repented. When Jonah didn't believe they could, God can. So the question to ask ourselves today is, it's not just have we endured the world's mockery and rejection of the truth that we love. It's, it's have we remained faithful to herald the gospel to the world, to let our light shine, to bring the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, no matter how they treat us when, when, when we do it. If we don't, church, he'll pull our lampstand from this place. Standing firm for true and pure doctrine is, is essential. There are churches here in Revelation 2 and 3 who didn't do that, and God says, I'm going to make war. It's worse for them. I'm going to make war against you because you've become my enemies. Standing firm for true doctrine is essential, but it is not enough. We have to love the lost enough to warn them of the coming judgment and call them to repent and believe on Jesus and be saved. If we do, if we're faithful to that to the very end, that's when we are demonstrated to be conquerors by his grace, and then we will be granted to eat of the tree of life. Adam and Eve could have eaten the tree of life, right, in the book of Genesis, way back in the garden, but they weren't faithful to God's command. If we're in Christ and our sins are forgiven through faith in Christ alone, then we will eat of the tree of life. That just means we will live with him for eternity and glory. And if we're in him, it means we're faithful to obey everything that he has commanded. So let's pray together today that his word, that his spirit will light something in us, will reignite maybe something in us that has grown dim possibly in our own hearts, maybe in our church. 
and cause us to, to start to feel a growing flame of love and urgency for the lost in the world around us and carry that into 2023 as what we are as a church. Not just those who teach truth, but those who plead with sinners to be saved. Let's pray to him today. Our God and our Father, again, how grateful we are for your word and how we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would not only illuminate its meaning to us today, but that you would convict us of it and change us and transform us by it that we might more and more be a church and become a church that shines the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the darkness of the world around us. Father, we pray today that your word and your spirit would spur us to be faithful in our love, in our witness to the lost in this world, in Santa Cruz County, as we trust you, as we lean on your strength, in order to let your light shine unhindered in the darkness around us. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.